It's Friday, August 31st, and this is The Daily Dive. There are two new laws hitting the books that will close loopholes that allow fraudsters to steal children's identities. Kids are attractive targets for scammers to open credit cards or take out loans because they have clean credit reports. In many cases, family members are the ones responsible for opening up these credit cards. Leticia Miranda, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for details on the new laws and a story about a dad who opened a credit card in his son's name to buy a ring for his new wife. Next, a gene editing tool known as CRISPR has been used to repair a gene mutation in dogs with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. The results of the study were very exciting because of the future potential to treat the same illness in humans. Amy Doxer Marcus, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about the study and if CRISPR could be ready for humans next. Finally, the question has been around for some time now. Which is worse for you, alcohol or marijuana, weed or whiskey? Aaron Broadwin, senior science and tech reporter for Business Insider, looked into all the research and recent studies on the effects of each of these substances on your body and will let us know who the winner is. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Kids, because they have clean credits, make for really attractive targets for fraudsters, people looking to open credit cards. And it's unfortunately beyond that very common for their own family members to use their information. Joining us now is Leticia Miranda, reporter for BuzzFeed News. We're going to be talking about identity theft, more specifically the identity theft of children. And there's some new laws on the books that are going to close some of these loopholes that allow a lot of fraudsters to steal children's identities. But let's start with a story you did about a four-year-old kid whose social security number was used to open a credit card or a few credit cards. The person who did it was his own father. What is this story about, Leticia? Unfortunately, KJ, the four-year-old that you referenced, is not alone in this experience. His mother, Trina Patterson, who we spoke to earlier in the year, discovered that her son's information had been used to open up credit cards and spent weeks on the phone with credit bureaus trying to correct the information and ran into a bunch of issues that show how difficult it is for children to clean up their credit records once their number is taken. And unfortunately, kids, because they have clean credits, make for really attractive targets for fraudsters, people looking to open credit cards. And it's unfortunately beyond that very common for their own family members to use their information. Now, reading through the story, the first thing I thought, hopefully he used the credit cards to buy something for the family or something that they needed. And then I got to the point where Patterson had told you guys that he used the cards to buy his current wife an engagement ring and she was all she was doing was asking him to buy a car seat for their son and he wouldn't do it and i'm like wow what a jerk how does this happen like i mean i know that credit bureaus and credit card companies use social security card numbers but doesn't it check the ages like didn't that stuff match up when he was trying to open the credit line in his son's name The system is pretty complicated, we learned through reporting this out, partially because of a federal law that was made back in the 1970s. The Social Security Administration can't give out this type of information to creditors or any kind of agency looking into to verify identities. The way that the government used to assign Social Security numbers was based on somebody's location or their age. And so these third party vendors could patch together some way to alert 
alert a creditor about whether or not it's likely that this person is fraudulently using the the number. But the way that credit bureaus develop credit files is by credit inquiries. So if an adult or somebody who uses a child's identity is applying with a stolen number, a kid's credit report is basically a blank slate. So as soon as somebody makes a credit inquiry, then that number is effectively theirs to use however they want. It's a difficult system to, to navigate. Yeah. It left a whole lot of loopholes for people to be able to do this pretty frequently. And, and the credit card companies are in the business of being expeditious. They want it to happen quickly. So, you know, adding all these extra checks, it costs more money. It takes more time. Maybe they're not checking checking it out as well as they should be doing. Kids born after 2011 are particularly vulnerable to this because of the way the social security numbers are given out. Yes. After 2011, as a way for the government to put in more barriers to keep people from stealing kids' identities, they randomized social security numbers for kids and new immigrants. That made it difficult for these third-party vendors to develop algorithms or formulas to guess whether or not somebody is using the number fraudulently. So it created more of a mess. In, in its effort to try to keep people from stealing kids' identities. And KJ's mom had to sue the credit bureaus because they weren't properly taking all the stuff away, the credit inquiries. He hasn't even had a chance to start using a credit card yet, and his credit's already ruined at that point. What's going on now? There's, I know there's two new laws that are going to help close a lot of these loopholes. There are two laws. One is going into effect in a month. It's part of a round of banking laws that were aimed at correcting some of the issues that came up with the Equifax data breach. And one of the major parts of this banking law is to protect people's identities from being stolen. This new law that comes out in September makes it free for parents to put a credit freeze on their child's account or on their numbers and to get free credit reports. And before, state had a patchwork of processes for parents to do this, but it was not uniform across the country. Some states had no process. Some states had varying processes to go through. So this makes it uniform across the country for the first time. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, it, it lets you, you know, as you said, to freeze the credit score so that you can check continually if somebody's trying to open new lines of credit and things like that. And it will prevent family members from <laughs> stealing your, your credit at that point. What's the uh, second law? The second thing is that the Social Security Administration will begin accepting electronic forms to double check information that they have about date of birth, social security number, addresses. This will help expedite that ID verification process that banks or other creditors have to go through. Previously, it was just a paperwork process and banks, because they're in a rush to sign on new credit applicants, avoided or didn't go through that paperwork process. And so this theoretically would make it easier for them to send in an electronic consent form that would give the Social Security Administration the permission to analyze the information that they have and give the banks a match, no match response. It's good that we're getting some new laws on the books to help fight and close these loopholes. But I think the big takeaway is don't open credit cards in your family's names because it's going to cause a bunch of problems. Leticia Miranda, reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. A few years ago, with my colleague Emmanuel Charpentier, I invented a new technology for editing genomes. 
It's called CRISPR-Cas9. The CRISPR technology allows scientists to make changes to the DNA in cells that could allow us to cure genetic disease. Joining us now is Amy Doxer Marcus, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So there's some cool news about this new gene editing technology called CRISPR. It's been around for a few years, but it's being used for more and more things. The latest thing was that they used it to repair a gene mutation in dogs with a form of muscular dystrophy. It was successful. Everybody goes crazy about these things because there's always more potential. There's always a potential to one day use this in humans. Let's start off with what CRISPR technology is. What is this gene editing technology? CRISPR in nature is actually the immune system of bacteria. And a few years ago, scientists figured out a way to adapt this tool to enable gene editing in the DNA of plants, animals, and humans. And it's taken off since then. It's a crazy little thing. It's a quirk, as you said, in the immune systems of the bacteria. Basically, they have these little enzymes that can cut up viruses and other things. And it makes those cuts in the virus, and they were able to exploit that thing. So they can implant it into anything. It's been successful in all forms of organisms that they've used it on, and it basically cuts the gene. There's so many possibilities with it. So in this case, with dogs, what did they use? It was a, There's this Duchenne muscular dystrophy that occurs in dogs and occurs in humans also. What did they do? How did this study work out? The disease does occur in dogs, and that's how they identified the mutation initially. Someone brought their dog into the hospital who was sick, and then they were able to breed that dog to with other dogs and create a dog colony. What they decided to do is Duchenne muscular dystrophy has thousands of mutations that cause it. They chose one of the most common ones that are found in people. In about 13% of people, they have this specific mutation. They injected CRISPR into the dogs. They programmed it to go to a spot in the DNA where this mutation was, and they cut it. And then as when the cells repaired themselves, it enabled the production of dystrophin to start again. And dystrophin, that protein, is very important for the health of muscles, and it's what's missing in people who have the disease. Let's take a quick step back. What is Duchenne? Because I know it impacts a lot of uh, boys in particular, and it happens when they're younger. But, you know, it's that form of muscular dystrophy. Things stop working. Eventually, you know, you can stop breathing. Your heart stops beating. And that's kind of where this took into play with the dogs as well. But so what is Duchenne muscular dystrophy? So it is a genetic condition. It's fatal. It's diagnosed in around 20,000 children globally every year and primarily diagnosed and found in men. Women can get the disease, but they tend to be carriers. It's fatal. It's a progressive disease. The dystrophin, since it doesn't work, the muscles are continually contracting and they weaken over time because they don't have this essential protein that strengthens the muscles. The director of the study and the senior author of the paper said that this is like putting a good spare tire on a car. It's not as good as the original, but it'll get you where you're going. And in this study, they restored the levels of dystrophin to up to 90% of normal, which is pretty amazing. That's a really good spare tire at that point. I think what 
he meant by that also, that comment is, it ranged from 3% to 90% in various muscles. So, and, you know, they don't know why. Why was it more effective in bringing the dystrophin to closer to normal levels in some of the muscles and not in other muscles? There's so many questions to answer. It was a very small study, only four dogs, and they weren't able to observe the dogs for very long. So it really needs to be expanded to a far larger number of dogs, and they have to keep going for a longer period of time because there's so many things they still don't understand. But it was exciting because they were able to show that they could get dystrophin production in the uh, the heart muscle and also in the diaphragm, and those are essential muscles for breathing. And most of the people, when they die, they do die from cardiac and respiratory problems, and so if they could find a way to keep those muscles strong, then that would hopefully have real benefit. As I was saying, the potential for this CRISPR gene editing, it's countless. You can use it to edit crops to be more nutritious, stop genetic diseases, as in this case. They can create you know, more powerful antibiotics and antiviral medicines. The whole notion of designer babies comes into play with this thing. But there's a lot of concerns, even in this case, particularly with the Duchenne treatments. It all has to do with the DNA, and you can just totally ruin somebody making the wrong cut, or the DNA can change over time as well. Yeah, I mean, we have billions and billions of muscle cells, and one of the doctors that I also interviewed who wasn't involved in the study, he said, we don't know yet, we don't really have a precise enough way to measure that these cuts are only going to the spot on the DNA that we want them to go to and that it that we're not deleting potentially things that are essential. We don't yet fully understand how genes interact with one another. So if you cut out one that you think is a deleterious gene, is there a possibility that the genes that are interacting with it, that that might cause a problem? You have to be cautious, obviously, before you would ever try this in a person. Yeah, and I think the next step for these scientists, they're going to do some longer-term studies on dogs, and then hopefully, if things work out well, they can move on to uh, some type of human trials. Amy Doxer, Marcus, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I think there can be, there may well be some benefits from medical marijuana, and it's perfectly appropriate to study that. The American Medical Association is absolutely, resolutely uh, opposed to marijuana use. Joining us now is Aaron Broadwin, senior science and tech reporter for Business Insider. BuzzFeed just had a new report about the Trump administration's secret war on weed. They said they amassed a committee of federal agencies from across the government to combat public support for marijuana. So basically, they're asking for things that would paint it in a negative light, portray marijuana as a national threat. And, uh, you know, these are all across different agencies. There was a funny memo that came out of it. According to BuzzFeed, they said that the narrative around marijuana is unfairly biased in favor of the drug. So they're fighting an uphill battle. But there at Business Insider, Aaron, you guys took a look through a bunch of different studies about alcohol and marijuana to see which one has the worst effect on you and your body. What did we come out with? Which is worse for you, weed or whiskey? (laughs) 
in a lot of places, both marijuana and alcohol have been portrayed as relatively similar vices with quite a few risks and maybe a few benefits. I know I've seen personally a lot of studies suggesting that certain amounts of, for example, red wine are really good for your heart. Right, um, have and a glass so what, of wine a day. Yeah, exactly. So what we wanted to do here at Business Insider is take a look at some of the actual peer-reviewed public research. So some of the limitations of that I'd like to just start with is that one of the key ones is that marijuana is illegal in a lot of places. So there is less published research about that one. But given what we have, it became clear to me that there are a lot more published health risks linked with alcohol than there are with marijuana. And that was a bit surprising for a lot of us. Based on all the peer-reviewed science we researched, there does appear to be a clear answer to this age-old question of which is worse for you, alcohol or marijuana. And right off the bat, uh, alcohol was the leading risk factor for death in 2016 of people uh, ages 15 to 49. Yeah, that's true. That was a pretty recent study that just came out. A lot of people have been talking about it. Again, we have to keep in mind there are tricky issues here related to the correlation versus causation debate, which is does one thing cause the other? But there was a risk here linked between drinking alcohol and an overall cause of death. And one of the quotes from that paper that I felt was pretty poignant was, alcohol use is a leading risk factor for global disease burden and causes substantial health loss. They said, quote, the level of consumption that minimizes health loss is zero. There was one of these studies that even said that there's no safe level of alcohol consumption, eliminating that daily glass of wine. The other one people pointed to was that marijuana seems to be significantly less addictive than alcohol. Yeah, so I thought this was super interesting, too. Um, Marijuana is often portrayed as an addictive drug, i.e. you use once and then you want to keep using and increase your use. But there was a study done, actually, one of the only data points we have on this is unfortunately from 1994, which is a bit older than we'd like. But what it showed is that of those who tried marijuana at least once, only about 9% eventually fit a diagnosis of addiction, whereas for alcohol, that figure was actually much higher. It was 15%. And cigarettes Um, were the worst of all. Yeah, cigarettes were the worst of all, not surprisingly, 32%. So, yeah, that's a pretty stark difference. What about this uh, link with alcohol linked to cancer? Mm -hmm. I've seen that in a couple of different moments in the article, but I didn't know that they were linking those two. Actually, the U.S. Department of Health lists alcohol as a known human carcinogen or cancer-causing agent. The link is pretty strong, and there has been some research recently that the National Cancer Institute highlighted that suggested that actually the more alcohol you drink, and especially the more you drink regularly, the higher your risk actually of developing cancer. And not too long ago, I believe it was fall of last year, a large group of some of the nation's top cancer doctors issued a statement that I've never seen a statement before like this in my career as a journalist, but they essentially were asking people to drink less. They said that as little as a glass of wine, that glass of wine maybe that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, or beer a day increases the risk of developing both pre and post menopausal breast cancer. So, and on the marijuana side, bad. they uh, thought that there might have been some type of uh, association with lung cancer, but then they said, no, there's nothing there. Right. They did. They, they didn't find that association to hold true. The thing with marijuana is that it's often smoked and smoking anything has been linked with a risk of cancer. So what they wanted to do is suss out whether this was something that was linked specifically with smoking or if it was linked specifically with marijuana. And yeah, that risk didn't bear out. There seems to be a winner that, you know, uh, marijuana is not so bad for you as alcohol is. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I try not to say there's one is better than the other, but it does appear that the bulk of research suggests alcohol may be a riskier substance. Erin Broadwin, senior science and tech reporter for Business Insider. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.